Hi, I'm Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is Black America and COVID, an oral history project. I started this project during Black History Month of 2022 because I wanted to provide a platform for Black Americans to share their stories about living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. I also wanted to provide a space for people to memorialize someone who is a Black American who sadly lost their life during the COVID-19 pandemic. I was inspired by the work of Zora Neale Hurston, author and anthropologist, to record the experiences of Black Americans in their own voices. My goal is to get my recordings into museums, such as the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, or the Schomburg, or the Library of Congress's Folklife Museum. I'll share a little bit about me and my family history, and then I'll speak to my guests. I'm a Black American. My dad was African American and Indigenous American. His ancestors were enslaved in Georgia. In fact, we still have our family's slave name, which is Kilbrew. My dad, Dr. Terrence Kilbrew, met my mom in graduate school at the New School in New York when they were both earning their master's degrees in psychology. And I'm a fourth generation teacher. So my mother is a retired New York City teacher. My grandmother was a teacher on the island of Jamaica for 20 years and then in New York for 20 years. My great-grandmother was a teacher in Jamaica up until she got married. She was the daughter of an Irish woman and a black man. She stopped working after she got married because it wasn't considered respectable for a married woman to continue working in the late 1800s. And ironically, my mother began teaching long after she got married in the late 1900s. So, Without further ado, I'm excited to speak with my guest today. My name is Dion Flynn, and um, I'm from Michigan. I lived there for two years in Detroit, and then I moved to Maryland and lived there for a while until I was 17. Then I left home under, you know, bad circumstances. I would say I was a runaway, and I left home and went to California and lived out there in the West Coast hitchhiking from the south part of the west coast to the pacific northwest and lived out there for a year came back home to maryland for a little while and then moved to uh moved all around the world with the army the united states army for four years and then got out of there and went to uh, lived in new york around albany capital district and then i moved to new york city where i've lived for 25 years and uh i've enjoyed it i picked up uh education i picked up a, a wife and a son and um and now we're going to be moving somewhere which i won't talk about yet until it's actually happening happening so but now i live in brooklyn and lived here for a while and um yeah and do you identify as african-american or black or how do you identify you know, it's changed over time. To keep it simple, I'll say black. 
people see me as black people you know see me some people see me uh the comedian eric andre one time he was on stage and i was co-hosting a comedy show and he just looked at me because i was sitting under a spotlight and i was the co-host i was sort of the the side man like the ed mcmahon for the show Mm-hmm. And he turned to me and he said, you are every race uh, that's ever been. He just <laughs> looked at my face. That's how he summed it up. I thought it was pretty funny. Um, but I mean, I can literally tell you what it is. I, I came prepared to talk about this, actually. I have a little screen here I, for my 23 and me. You know, you have 23 and me, you spit in a cup and yeah, they tell you what you are. And, uh, and in fact... Why don't I, you know what I'll do is I'll share screen with you and then maybe this will come up on the video. I guess it will. Um, let me just make sure everything that's going to be seen is worth, is, is okay to be seen. Okay, good. So this is my racial breakdown. Oh, wow. Kind of cool, huh? So it's 61 and 62.1% European actually British and Irish. And that's, you know, from over here on this little map. And then my African side is, uh, I'm, you know, 35.2% Sub-Saharan African with most of my African coming from uh, West Africa and Nigeria. Wow. And if you ever get this done, or if you've had it done, you'll know that, you know, they'll trace also where your bloodline came through in the, in the slave trade. And mine was the Bahamas, you know. <gasps> Yeah. So I have some Bahaman blood. So basically, here's what, you know, my bloodline came from here in West Africa, was transported to the slave trade, half of my ancestry. And the other half, which came from my white ancestry, came from up here, uh, you know, Northwestern European and uh, Europe and Britain, the British Isles. And basically what I say is I'm a black Viking. (laughs) that's what i tell people if such a thing exists uh but really that's a funny punchline but a little more true to the point it's um it's british and irish and um sub-saharan african so wow kind of cool huh very i feel like we all have irish because i learned my great great grandmother was full-blooded irish woman who married a man in jamaica so do we all have Irish? Really? <laughs> when Irish eyes are smiling, you know. That's you, right. You say Gaelic. No, that's well, not Gaelic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just do accents because I'm dumb. And that's, oh, uh, not, you're well, funny. Funny, that's right. But in, in comedy, I think when we say we're dumb, it's like, it's just shorthand for, I know this is ridiculous. Uh, oh, it's because... Sorry, because I'm a teacher, so I'm always yeah. like, oh, you can be nice to yourself. Okay. Right, and it's probably a good thing to do. Comedians always use this shorthand, which is self-deprecating, which is like this dumb little thing. But obviously, we don't think it's dumb or we wouldn't be trying it. But what I think what it does ultimately, 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 ultimately is it tricks the it tricks the part of your mind that has to put things out there. When you're a creative person, as you know, you know, it, it takes some doing to put yourself out there creatively. And uh, sometimes by calling it dumb, we trick ourselves into like, nobody can attack it because we've already sort of put it down first. Oh. And while I know from my, you know, my deep psychological work, um, I know that that's not healthy. I do recognize a certain... Uh, I have seen a productive use of that tool in self-deprecation because it bypasses the critical parents. 
lot of comedians come from very critical homes where people mm-hmm. are sarcastic and biting and that's where they get that you know ability to do that mm-hmm. and um anyway i don't want to digress too far from the point but you know i mean a lot of comedians are you know jewish and black and you know people that have felt on the outside sort of observing mm-hmm. and it gives you a point of view um a polite society, which is, uh, you know, helps with the comedy. Well, thank you for sharing the the detailed map of your ancestry. My mom has done it, but I haven't done it yet. So I, I do want to Are you do planning it. to do it? Yeah, I have the kit. She gave it to me for my Christmas. Um, yeah. Wait a second. Hold on. You mean you have a perfectly good 23andMe kit sitting around? Yes. All right. Can we do this? Can we do it while you're on here? Oh, it's, it's, it's not here. She has it. I'll, I'll get it from her. Um, I left it at her place. Like I opened it there and then I left it there. I gotcha. Well, I used, I always say on stage, I'm like, uh, you know, 23 and me, I'll say to people, I'll say, um, I'll say, you know, 23 and me, you know what that is? Like, you know, you, you spit on a, you spit in the cup and they'll tell you where you're from. I, you send me 200 bucks and spit in the cup and send it to me. I'll tell you where you're from. Naive town. Um, it's a joke. It's an all jokes. So, you know, so you're such a sweet, kind person that you hear this kind of raucous, insulting humor. And you probably think uh, you probably I don't know. But I, I like know the word naive town. I yeah, naive before. town. I'll tell you where you're from. All right. You're from naive town. But it's a joke. It just but the truth of that joke is that it just it seems a little sketch to be just spitting in a cup and sending it off in the mail. But uh, not so much now that we've all had COVID tests out the Wahoo. Yes. Well, yeah, speaking of COVID tests, I'm really excited to hear about your experience living and working during the pandemic. And if you could start in 2020 and then weave the story through 2021 till today. Well, you know, I was going to go, I'm a speaker and I teach and I perform and things. So sometimes I'm asked to, you know, come and speak at someone's dinner or their business organization, you know, uh, you know, aside from the, the work that I do all the time with my improvisers, you know, mindset uh, group. Um, so sometimes I'll, you know, as a consultant, you're asked to come and speak. And I was asked by a woman who was um, affiliated with a, a, a large speaking organization and she organized these dinners and, um, she asked me to come and speak at her dinner. And I was just going to, and I usually use slides and I, you know, you saw, I already used a visual on here. You know, I like to do that. And I just feel like it helps with the teaching and the sharing of the idea. So she said, come to this meal and it's a bunch of business people and uh, you'll talk and it'll be great. We'll all eat and we'll socialize. And I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. That'd be great. And it was one of the first events that I was involved with that was canceled. Oh. And, and so from, from COVID in, in, you know, I guess March of 2020. And, uh, and so we talked on the phone or zoom or something. And she said, yeah, well it's canceled. And I said, well, we're both interested in improvisation. You know, what if we switched this thing to remote? Like we just put it on Zoom and maybe, I don't know, instead of doing the meal part, just had people come by anyway or something. 
And she said, yeah, let's, you know, because a big part of improvisation is, is yes. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that concept. I but, have. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's pretty widely known now. Um, and so in the spirit of yes, and which come to find out was a really good attitude and guiding principle to hold during the uh, pandemic, because it's all about stepping into the unknown. It's about getting out of my habitual negative response or the one that says I can't do this or it's not going to work out. And instead, um, you know, stepping into it without knowing how it's all going to turn out, but stepping in with a good attitude and stepping in with hope. And so we did it and we set up this meeting and, you know, I can't remember the exact details right around there, but soon enough, we came up with some parameters and some ideas and I came up with a name for, for this meeting. And I, and I decided to call it the improvisers mindset. And the idea was that people could come during the pandemic free of charge and meet with us. You know, it was like two hours for free in the beginning, you know, and I, and I would sort of, I have a master's degree in acting. So I'm, mm -hmm. you know, qualified to sort of teach acting and mm -hmm. guide people through improv and, so all kinds of people came and people, you know, played games and these improv games and they were connecting and they continued to connect. Um, now, here's another part. OK, so my son, who's multiracial, uh, my wife is Italian and Irish and my son is a mixture of everything I showed you, plus my wife's Italian and Irish. And earlier today, he said to me, we were talking and he was off from school because he didn't feel good and, he, you know, he really was up against it and. We thought he'd just stay home one extra day. Um, you know, I took a phone call and I was helping somebody out and it was my work hours. So I was, you know, my wife was out and, and, and he said, look, I've been, you know, I'm spending my time with you. He said, he's nine years old. He said, I'm spending my time with you. And, um, you know, you put me off words to that effect with mm -hmm. this phone call, this phone call I had. And then he was crying. So, so the words didn't matter to me much more after that because he was just, he was upset and he wanted to connect. Mm -hmm. And I turned to him and I said, you know what? You're right. I put all the work stuff aside and I sat and I looked at him and I said, you know what? You're right. And I hear you. And, you know, I hugged him and, and, and all this. And, and then we, we faced each other and I said, you know what? Here's what, something I have to tell you. I actually have a hard time um, you know, facing people, like being intimate and, and close and direct with people. Mm -hmm. And I've never told my son that it's a pretty heavy trip to lay on a younger kid, but he was, he was at this moment where I said, you know what, I'm just going to tell him that I have, you know, these things that I sort of deal with in my life and have for a long time, which are part of why I promulgate and, and support and live this improvisers mindset lifestyle is because, and he said immediately, he said, well, yeah, but isn't, but isn't that the improviser's mindset? Isn't that about you facing people like all the time? And I said, yes, it is very good. Very good. Very good thought. You're absolutely right. It is. And, and when I set the time aside to do that consciously, I can do it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not my habit. My habit is to isolate and to, um, you know, be, by myself in my head, writing or creating or doing things that don't always involve, you know, iterative back and forth, collaborative, you know, dialoguing and things like that, you know, 
you could chalk it up to me being an only child. You could chalk it up to the, the, the being the only brown kid in the trailer park when I was growing up. You could chalk it up to something that's way back in that ancestry that I showed you before and has nothing to do with any of those particular items. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it, it was my son and I, and he was crying and I had tears in my eyes and because I was really being straight with him and I really saw and heard the pain of what it is to be, you know, uh relating to someone that you're having to try to you know feel like you have to cajole to interact with you and Mm -hmm. i really wanted him to know that it was not personal and that i would work on it and i'm willing to work on it you know even more diligently and and consciously with him so i say all of that to come back around to the idea and i'm connecting all of this to the fact that the pandemic and the zoom stuff never bothered me. I mean, now, I don't mean that I wasn't impacted by the loss of people. I lost someone very, very important to me, uh, that I wasn't impacted by people that I knew who lost loved ones, that I wasn't frightened by this invisible thing that affected the breathing that was floating around in the air. It was very much with me, almost like a horror movie imagery in the beginning. Mm -hmm. What I mean is that the distancing that most people felt that uh, was, was that crashed in on them during the pandemic, social lives, trips, dinners, things like this, that were uh, stripped away from people. And, and they were being forced to go in from like full color, you know, 8K, you know, full HD or whatever, 8K, you know, to a very two dimensional, box mm-hmm. to me it was an upgrade in connection with people I, oh. I was I was more in contact with people because I knew I had the power to shut the zoom off anytime or because they were you know hundreds or thousands of miles away something about it allowed me to open up more with people than I had been before so whereas many people were reporting on the loss of connection that they were experiencing through Zoom in particular, I was experiencing an expansion and an increase in hours spent relating to people, Mm. connecting with people, hearing from them. Um, So I enjoyed Zoom very much. Having been on television, you know, many times and things, I, I was comfortable being on camera and working with a camera. And, you know, once you get over the the sort of basic mechanics of being on camera and, and trusting the microphone to pick up what yeah. it is you're, you're laying out there. Um, you know, it's, it's very effective and you can have a, uh, I had, I had a very good and solid experience of, of intimacy and connection with people. Um, and I know it's a little odd to say these things um, and to put it uh, you know, in that angle or come at it from that angle, but that's, that was it. That's so interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard that perspective. This is what I love about talking to people. Everyone is so unique. So can you describe 24 hours and during the pandemic, either in 2020 or 2021? Yeah, we live in an apartment in Brooklyn. Okay. And so, you know, we would, in the beginning, we, we watched some videos that when you brought groceries back from the grocery store, you needed to wash them. 
Mm-hmm. That was the word that went out at first. And so we did, we did all that stuff. We did all the, we did the really conservative approach because um, I don't know why. I don't, I don't know why. Maybe it was because of our son and, and some, I, I probably was more conservative and careful than I would have been 10 years before when I was, a, you know, 10 or 12 years before when I was a bachelor mm-hmm. living by myself. Um, but for whatever reasons, I think my son being one of them, uh, my wife and I were very diligent and we educated ourselves and we watched the, uh, the news reports and the information that was going around um, about COVID and we stayed inside. And, you know, like I said before, we, we were kind of homebody-ish people before, so it wasn't a huge change. So 24 hours. Um, we live in a building uh, with other units and it's a, uh, you know, a cooperative, uh, you know, a co-op in New York City, which means, you know, we all in the building have a board and we take care of the building together and everyone is interested and concerned with what's going on in the basement and what's going on. And so I needed a place to work because my work was transitioning from going out and speaking and leading workshops in companies and things across the country to live events. Mm. And, and, and companies were interested very quickly in whether or not you could show up and do live events on, on Zoom or whatever other platform, you know, Microsoft Teams or whatever else they had. As an improviser, you know, the first bit of improv I can show you is in my DNA. Mm-hmm. Africans coming from Africa sent to a new country uh, and told to just make it up as you go. You're, you're stripped of your language, you're slipped, stripped of your ancestry and your gods or whatever was going on over in Africa for that part of my bloodline. Mm-hmm. Um, and set free in this new country, not free, set, you know, turned loose into this new lifestyle, which is, uh, you know, completely strange and unknown and now in captivity and make it work make it work with these constraints and this new set of circumstances go it's the great you know that's the great improv premise of i think in history for for Mm. people and there's no there's no coincidence in my mind that jazz music you know came from us Mm. the ability to take what's there and or have nothing have nothing, make something, take what's there, expand on it, turn it around, refuse to follow orders, uh, you know, um, duck the authority, rebel, duck, go around and make your own thing. Um, It's the most, you know, and I I believe that part of my improvisational soul comes from there. And so I said, yes, I said, I can, uh, I can work online you know, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can I go on? Yeah, I can go online. For me, it was better, you know, um, yeah. because of the things I said. So, well, when you're in a small apartment and you have uh, a kind of, we didn't have like a really high tech internet in our building. So everybody's sharing our internet, you know, the, the three of us, he's doing, my son's doing hybrid school stuff. My wife is needing to do her stuff on the internet and I'm needing to do mine can't really conduct business you know unless yeah. everybody agrees she's going to go on sell data he's going to go on this you know he's going to go offline i'll be on 
eventually, you know, I couldn't do any business really in the house. So I went downstairs to the basement. There was this front room. It's the little, little, not storage closet. It was bigger than that. But it was this front room where, you know, a storage closet was in there that our handyman would come in and he'd store bags and the, the, the air conditioners were kept there off season. And so I was down there with those things and I conducted business. I ran a, a, a Wi-Fi cable from our cable box down through our bathroom, through an in, internal ductwork, brought it down into there and began to run sessions down there. I got a green screen from the back to, or behind me. And I just kept going. I just knew I had to keep working. I had to keep earning. And, um, you know, I was given the uh, willingness, the tenacity, the humility, whatever it comes, whatever I was granted to be able to fit in that weird little space. And I don't just mean the physical space of the building, although it was, you know, it was suboptimal. Um, but to fit psych psychically into mm -hmm. that space of, you know, I'm going to show up. I'm going to do whatever God brings my way. I'm going to show up for whatever work is available and I'm going to make whatever changes are necessary to survive. And I thought back on not just my, you know, my African history, but I thought of my European history too. And I thought of the, the ancestors of mine in England, you know, during the war and they need to, in the World War II and they need to turn off the lights and they need to come together so they don't get bombed. And, mm you know, this, it felt like we were being attacked. Mm. It felt like we were being attacked. Um, it felt like there was a, a, an enemy force that was coming and it was coming to kill us possibly if we didn't take precautions. And we took those precautions and here I was in the basement, still like the resistance during World War II, you know, just like sending out these radio signals, you know, across Zoom and whatever. And I borrowed from the courage of, of both sides of my ancestry from the past. And, um, you know, so that would happen. I'd go down there for a few hours. I'd come back up for lunch. I'd leave my stuff set up. And, um, and then I needed to navigate the other people in the building um, mm. and their interest in what's going on in that front room like we can hear him talking and what's happening you know and i didn't have one of those professional dj on air don't talk lights to put outside the door or whatever i mean it's a it's a shared building for the most part i was quite lucky because everyone was very respectful and um there was never really any kind of um conflict where people needed to talk especially loud when i needed to have it quiet or anything it ended up being, you know, very agreeable. And I was open with people. So I would say the impact of the, uh, the, 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 the humility that, that something like a global pandemic provides me an opportunity to, to be a part of is the humility of saying, you know what, I'm not in control here. And I got to work and adapt around what's happening right now. I got to, I got to, uh, I got to find some open water and, and mm. move through it, you know, and um, I don't have the luxury of just sitting down in the snow and saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. Um, there was, it's funny, about a month ago, they located a ship that was sunk in Antarctica. And it was called the Endurance. And it was a ship that was 
you know, captained by this guy, Ernest Shackleton, who I'm sure was racist. I just want to say, I'm pretty sure he was probably, yeah, I, I don't know that. It's, that doesn't come through in any of the books you read. But looking back at 100 plus years ago and, and just knowing what was what, he probably was. But either way, the way he led those guys on that ship, and since that is part of my blood ancestry, you know, back to literally London, um, mm-hmm. there is there's part of me that takes strength from 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 the strongest part of both sides of my ancestry you know um and anyway this guy captained the ship and all 39 people survived and they shouldn't have survived so anyway to bring the metaphor back to what is 24 hours like in our home during the pandemic i just saw that i never had the option to just sit down in the snow and die i had two entities upstairs who were depending on me mm-hmm. to, earn, to earn and to find new ways to use the technology and become more savvy with online, you know, forms of collecting payments for whatever the things I'm doing. And all these things, all these adaptations came from the, the offers of the pandemic. You know, Sonia, in, in improv, we talk about offers. Um, Anything that someone does on, on stage, like my scene partner, they, they do something. We call it an offer rather than like a thing or you did something. You know, We call it an offer because it already has the energy of it being a positive thing. Oh, I can see what you're doing. I can see this. So, so the pandemic arrives and my brain had been tra- trained to look at everything that life brought as an offer. And some um. people... Some people through religious terminology will call it, you know, God's will. Everybody's got a way of shaping the reality with language that helps them navigate it. So for me, this improv stuff really helped because I saw the arrival of the pandemic and all of its component parts, um, both the external offers, you know, sickness, um, uh, quarantine um you can't go anywhere you can't travel you can't try work abroad the way you used to to the internal internal offers like our own fear coming up um us having to get closer as a family and really learn how to navigate a small new york city apartment uh when we really can't go out even freely like we used to to, Uh to to sort of mitigate that size restriction and um so I'd come back up for lunch, I'd eat with them, and then I'd go back down and get more work done. And then sometimes my son would come down with me and then we'd maybe watch a movie and, uh, you know, and we'd play a game and then we'd go back up. You know, we really did rely on, you know, uh, some online gaming stuff, a lot of online stuff, you know, games, puzzles, Googling things, uh, curating videos. I would curate videos for my son because I'm uh, very much love to learn. Mm-hmm. I, I watch, I watch videos about history and science, and I just like all different kinds of things. And so, rather than just let him, you know, wander around between the the, the shows, you know, that are available to him on his little Netflix account you know, we would curate videos for him. And when we did, we discussed them and he would say, oh, this is boring. And I was like, yes, that's good. That means his brain is working, you know, because it wasn't, <laughs> if he's just consuming things that produce dopamine, you know, like, 
high intensity, high editing kind of shows, um, you know, it, it, it feels good to him. And I get that. I understand that. Um, we turn to drawing, we turn to music. Um, and I just basically passed down to him every homespun crafty. My wife would do knitting and um, needlepoint. And, and we even tried a puzzle. Now, puzzle didn't work out too well. Um, nobody in our family likes puzzles, uh, like literally cardboard cutout puzzles. Yeah. We tried one. I knew an old trick from a family member. They were like, get the border stuff first, you know, get the flat parts on the outside. The old wisdom came back. Everybody hated it. Uh, we tried. We were just like, nobody could really um, just, nobody felt like it was a good way to spend our time. Yeah games you know board games um we we would do pictionary and, and oh. you know with pictionary of course you draw stuff and people guess it that's the basic premise but we kind of figured out a way to eliminate the the standard competitive aspects of it oh. and just made, made it more about the drawing and the guessing mm-hmm. yeah um online chess saved my life mm. yeah and my son you know of course he had to learn the basics of chess. And, you know, I, uh, I, I, I don't want to say made him, but it wasn't, it wasn't his natural impulse to do that. And then he got grandma and grandpa got him, um, a music studio thing. It's a little, uh, electronic thing with these inputs. Mm-hmm. And we would do beats and stuff like that and, um, really get into that stuff. So, you know, everything you can think of, acting, we would act out songs. It was very much, we became, suddenly we were Little House on the Prairie. (laughs) You know what I mean? Candlelight and there's nothing. And we're writing long form letters with a feather. You know, it was like, (laughs) it was very, but it was nice. Like we really bonded. We will never forget these two years. Yeah. They ended up being a kind of gift, um, they ended up being a kind of gift. You know, I didn't have a very large, extravagant life full of travel and restaurants and eating and sports events, and you know, so I was kind of ready for a pandemic. I was kind of built for one. Yeah. You know, I'm a rather sedentary guy. I like to do creative things. I like to write. And, um, and so yeah, I kind of, uh, I think I influenced a lot of what the family did during that time. Thank you. And you mentioned earlier that you sadly lost someone. Would you like to share a story about them? Yeah, I had a, um, I had a, a mentor, actually, like a, oh. a, a mentor who, who passed. Um, and let me think, maybe... I mean, I can, I can actually tell you who he is because it's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting. Um, so let me see. I'll share screen with you here because I do have this prepared. Um, so uh, this guy's name was, this guy's name was Gerald Mundus. Okay? Yeah. You see in Wikipedia here, you know, and he died. He was one of the early casualties. Um, mm. He was an author and a speaker and I knew his writing. And, um, you know, after years of knowing his writing and knowing his, um, just his, he helped writers, you know, writers who had writer's block and things like that. And he became a mentor of mine. 
you know, I asked him, I was like, you know, you know, can we work together? Can we, you know, transact, you know, something I just, I like a lot of what you say and what you do. And, and he was like, you know what? Um, he goes, you know, you must really be interested in this uh, because most people are afraid of me. And I was like, I, I don't know what to say about that, Jerry, but I'm really interested in, um, you know, in the things, you know, and the things I hear you talk about. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was an editor for the New York times and, you know, you can oh. see here, yeah, oh. author of the guild and, and Penn American center and poets and writers listed in contemporary authors and directory of American poets and fiction writers and all of this, but there's some other things about like he, he wrote under a number of pseudonyms and there's a, there's a, a book called the dogs, which most people think was written by a guy named Robert Calder. Yeah. But it was written by, it was written by Jerry. And um, he also wrote a series of books on uh, Africa and the slave trade. Mm. As he acted like he was a black historian named Eric Corder. Wow. Yeah, that's funny. Under the pseudonym Eric Corder, his Shame and Glory saga, which I have not read, by the way, and found this out later, um, about the American slave trade included the book Slave Ship, Slave, The Long Tattoo. Now, I'm, you know, if you had told me this and I looked at the guy with the white guy with his ponytail and uh, I would have thought, well, these are, you know, some sort of sex novels about, you know, they're black exploitation novels. There's no way. But I don't know. I mean, from the accounts of other people who have read them, and I will read them at some point, um, they are a very deep dive, which adds up because, you know, Jerry was a very deep guy. Mm -hmm. You know, um, when we would when we would go to his uh, when we would go to his uh, apartment in the West Village and, and talk and uh, and work, uh, he would talk to me about you know, Marcus Aurelius, and he would talk to me about meditation. And, um, you know, he really, really helped me out a lot. And um, he gave, he just gave me, he just gave me, I was just, I was seeking mentorship, you know, for my creative life. Mm -hmm. And I got it. And he died. So, you know, you can do the numbers. I don't know exactly, you know, I, you know, I think he was 78 or 79. Mm -hmm. uh, 1941 to 2020, March 3rd. So he had turned whatever he was going to turn. So he was, yeah, 79. He just turned 79 March 3rd, and then he died April 4th. Wow. Uh, the same day Martin Luther King, you know, died. And um, um, yeah, it was weird because it was sad. And I led a memorial for him. A lot of people came to the Zoom memorial that we had for Jerry. Um, and a lot of people loved him and his work and he really influenced and helped a lot of people. But for me and for what I could kind of glean from like his son who showed up at the memorial and other people, there was a sense that Jerry had lived a full life and Jerry was ready to face what, what was beyond. And um, there wasn't that tragedy of being you know cut down at his prime not that jerry wasn't as you know a a, a a vital human being he was um this disease of of covid was just very strong and proved too much but and um you know it, it just was kind of in in the end like I don't think Jerry was 
torn up about the way his life had gone and that there was, mm -hmm. you know, that he was robbed of extra time. Now, I'm not Jerry, so I can't say. So something else which is kind of interesting is that you can find a documentary online if you look up Boris the Chimp. Boris, Boris the Chimp. Boris the Chimp is about um, it's about a couple who lived in New York. It's true. It's nonfiction. Yeah. Lived in Manhattan near 71st Street or so. And they adopted a chimpanzee. And the chimpanzee lived with them and their son. And uh, they raised it like a baby. It had diapers. It had a cage. It had all this stuff. Until, you know, he, he got a little, you know, like chimps do, they'll get too crazy. And then you get, so, and Jerry was one of the people in that couple and he's in the documentary about this thing. And they loved this chimp like a son. And then years later though, well, they divorced, but then the wife went over to Japan or China and visited the chimp and there's a statue of him. And it's this whole saga that's part of Jerry's life. So, um, you know, I'll just say it. I mean, part, I, I don't tell that story much because I don't want anybody who's uh, sarcastic and racist to make any kind of connection between Jerry adopting me sort of late stage in life and him adopting a chimp and being racist, you know, about it. No, no, no. But I'm just saying, I, I, I have a set of hecklers in my head that, you know, that I'm always watching out for. I'm like, well, no, I'm not going to tell you that because you could say this thing and it would hurt me. Um, but anyway, I just want to point it all out. I feel like all those threads are there anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very odd to adopt a chimp. And, uh, you know, it's very odd to sort of semi-adopt a, a black man when you're older, you know, um, and, 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 uh, I saw those claims. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just racist. Um, no, he was a great writer. Actually, in my 20s, I stumbled across his book. I was living in Atlanta, his book, How to Get Out of Debt and Live Debt Free, because I was learning how to write a budget really? on my own. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to start tracking. <laughs> yeah, this is like years ago, randomly. Wow. Yeah. So interesting. Isn't that funny? Yeah, see? And there's people like you that found his books on finances and things like that. And their lives turned around. Yeah. And, you know, and that came out at his memorial. You know, it was a six hour memorial, 300 people. Wow. And I stayed until every single person that wanted to speak got a chance to speak. Seven hours, oh, I think it was. That's so important because we weren't, I don't know if they were having funerals at the time. I don't think so. Because of the, all the COVID restrictions. They definitely weren't. And um, they were not. And there was a big... Yeah there was a big hassle in his son who lives in the Midwest, even being able to get to Jerry's body. Oh, that's what was going on because they were putting people who died in the hospitals on freezer trucks outside. Mm. That's, oh. you know, just to sort of cat encapsulate our time. Oh. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that story about him. I didn't know that welcome. he had such a, a wide variety of writing yes yeah absolutely well and he used pseudonyms you know yeah. and I, I never turned to him and said jerry why did you use the pseudonyms um i could probably piece together an answer just if i thought about it for a while you mm -hmm. know maybe he said pieces and bits here and there but um i think it had to do with um 
I think it had to do, I think he had a lot of what I had, which is like, you know, you've got these talents, but, you know, bringing them out and sharing them <clears throat> due to whatever happened in the past or whatever your predisposition is, there's a sort of fragile disposition in there somewhere. And bringing these talents forward is, 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 is tricky and, and frightening. And this little sort of scared part of you comes out. Um, I think he had that too. And I think writing under the pseudonyms emboldened him to do what he did well, which was mm. write and clarify things, you know. Absolutely. But yeah. But I'll tell wow. you, um, I'm really grateful to, you know, have had the opportunity to come on here and talk about these things with you. Thank you for your time, Dion. Thank you. I really appreciate you sharing your ancestry and, and your life with me today. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. I'm Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is Black America and COVID, an oral history project.